Lesson 1 for March 28 to April 3, The Coming of Jesus. Sabbath afternoon, March 28. Before we start, let's pray. O Heavenly Father, we come to a new quarter. We come to look at one of those Gospels that tells the story of Jesus' birth and life and death. And as we do so, we want to gain more knowledge, we want to gain more understanding, but we also want to walk closer with you. Bless us as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is very short. It's from Luke one thirty-seven. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Let's read that again, Luke one thirty-seven. For with God, nothing will be impossible. The Gospel of Luke was written primarily to the Gentiles. Luke himself was a Gentile, implied in the context of Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. Let's read that. Colossians 4, verses 10 to 14. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea, and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you, as was Theophilus, to whom the gospel is addressed. In addition to being a physician, Luke was a meticulous historian. In introducing the gospel, Luke places Jesus in real history. That is, he puts the story in the historical context of its times. Herod was the king of Judea, as in Luke 1 verse 5. Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire, Luke 2, chapter 1, and a priest by the name of Zacharias was exercising his turn in the temple in Jerusalem, in chapter 1, verses 5 and 9. In chapter 3, Luke mentions six contemporary dates related to the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. Thus, Luke places the story of Jesus in history, real people, real times, in order to dismiss any idea of mythology with his narrative. His readers must stand in awe and wonder at the fact that Jesus is real, and that through him God has invaded history with, as it says in Luke 2.11, the Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Sunday, March 29, An Orderly Account Acts chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that before Acts was written, its author wrote a former account. Verse 1 reads, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, 
being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This and the fact that both accounts were addressed to Theophilus helps lead us to conclude that one author was responsible for both books. The two accounts can be viewed as parts one and two of Origin and History of the Christian Church. Part 1 is a narrative of the life and work of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke, and Part 2, Acts of the Apostles, is an account of the spread of the message of Jesus and of the early church. Question. How was the Gospel written? Firstly, Luke chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. And how is the gospel written? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Luke was aware of many who had written about the events that had shaken the city of Jerusalem and beyond, the events concerning Jesus Christ. The sources for such literary works included many eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, as we read in verse 2, a clear reference to the disciples and other contemporaries of Jesus. Luke himself had an exposure to these witnesses and ministers, such as Paul and other apostolic leaders, and possibly also to the Gospels written by Mark and Matthew. Luke obviously was not an eyewitness to the Jesus story, but he was a credible and authentic convert to Christ. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, presenting Jesus as the great teacher, the fulfilment of prophecy, and the king of the Jews. He often referred to Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. Mark wrote to the Roman audience about Jesus, the person of action. Luke, a doctor and a Gentile, wrote to the Greeks and the Gentiles about the universal Jesus, the saviour of the world. Luke mentions that the purpose of his writing is twofold, to present an orderly account, as we saw in verse 3, and to provide certainty to the great teachings of the new era. Certainly about truth, as in Jesus, is one goal of his gospel. And so to finish today, Luke, an inspired author of scripture, used other material in his writings. Very interesting. Obviously, that use of other sources doesn't negate the inspiration or authority of what he wrote. What lessons should that have for us as Seventh-day Adventists regarding the question of how inspiration, either canonical or non-canonical, works on inspired writers? Monday, March 30. Call his name John. For nearly 400 years after Malachi, divine silence marked the history of Israel. With the birth announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus, the divine silence was about to be broken. The birth stories of John and Jesus have parallels. Both are miracles, 
In the case of John, Elizabeth had gone well past the childbearing age. In the case of Jesus, a virgin was to bear the child. The angel Gabriel announced both birth promises. Both announcements were received in a spirit of wonder, joy, and surrender to God's will. Both babies were to grow and become strong in the spirit, as we read in Luke 1 verse 80, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And chapter 2 verse 40, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But the mission and the ministry of the two miracle babies were distinct and different. John was to be a preparer of the way for Jesus, as we read in Luke one thirteen to 17 But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Luke says that Jesus is the Son of God, in verse 35, and the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies he describes in verses 31 to 33, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." Question. Read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 22. Though Zacharias is depicted as blameless, his lack of faith at the angel's announcement brings a rebuke. How does this help us to understand what the concept of blameless means for a believer in Jesus? Well, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that, while he was serving as high priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 98, The birth of a son to Zacharias, like the birth of the child of Abraham and that of Mary, was to teach a great spiritual truth, a truth that we are slow to learn and ready to forget. In ourselves we are incapable of doing any good thing, but that which we cannot do will be wrought by the power of God in every submissive and believing soul. It was through faith that the child of promise was given. It is through faith that spiritual life is begotten, and we are enabled to do the works of righteousness. End of quote. The miracle of John had a decisive purpose in God's dealing with his people. After 400 years of prophetic absence in the history of Israel, John did break forth into that history with a specific message and with a decisive power. John's mission and message was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, Luke one seventeen. He was to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one to prepare the way for the mission of Jesus. Tuesday, March 31, call his name Jesus. The birth of Jesus Christ was no normal event. It was marked in God's eternal calendar and, as it says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. It is the fulfilment of the first promise God made after the entrance of sin in Eden, as in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Question. Read the following texts. In each one, how was the birth of Jesus an amazing fulfilment of prophecy? What does this tell us about why we must learn to trust all God's promises. First of all, we look at Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew 1 verses 22 to 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Micah 5.2 The coming Messiah. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. And Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Six months after Gabriel announced to Zacharias the coming birth of John, he announced to Mary of Nazareth an even greater miracle, that a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. That's Luke 1 verse 31. The virgin birth of Jesus goes against all nature, and it cannot be explained by nature or naturalistic philosophy. Even Mary had her question in verse 34. How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel assured her that this would be the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 35. And in verse 37, with God, nothing will be impossible. Mary's immediate and faithful submission was remarkable in verse 38. Let it be to me according to your word. Every human question, no matter how natural or logical, must give way to the divine answer. Be it creation or the cross, the incarnation or the resurrection, the downpour of manna or the outpouring of Pentecostal power, the divine initiative demands human surrender and acceptance. While Mary answered her own question by submission and surrendered to God's sovereignty and eternal purpose, Gabriel assured her with another great answer in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So to finish today, some secular cultures have been browbeaten into believing that everything ultimately has a naturalistic and scientific explanation. 
why is this such a narrow, even superficial view of the grandeur and greatness of reality? Wednesday, April 1, The Manger of Bethlehem Luke begins the story of the Bethlehem manger with a note of history. Joseph and Mary left their home in Nazareth to travel to their ancestral home of Bethlehem as a result of a census decree of Caesar Augustus, the Emperor of Rome, when Quirinius was governor in Syria. Such historical details must lead Bible students to appreciate Luke's submission to the Holy Spirit so that he would record the details of the Incarnation within the framework of history. Question. Reflect on the poverty of Jesus as seen in Luke chapter 2 verse 7. Compare the image of swaddling clothes, the manger and no room in the inn with Paul's description of the condescension of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. What kind of road did Jesus walk on our behalf? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And we'll compare this with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. The story of the poor circumstances in which the Lord of Heaven incarnated himself continues with the first visitors the manger had, the shepherds. Not to the rich or powerful, not to the scribes or the priests, not to rulers and the powers that held sway over the land did the good tidings of great joy, as expressed in Luke 2.10, come, but to humble and despised shepherds. Observe the majesty and the simplicity of the message. A Saviour is born to you in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord, the Anointed One. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's the author's translation. Heaven's most precious gift came in such a simple package, as often it does. But the gift brings glory to God, on earth peace and goodwill toward men in verse 14. Luke's record of the angel in Luke 2, 9-10 brings out three vital matters of Christian theology. Let's read those verses first. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying 
in a manger. This brings out three vital matters of Christian theology. First, the good news of the gospel is for all people. In Jesus, both the Jew and the Gentile become one people of God. Second, Jesus is the Saviour. There is no one else. Third, Jesus is Christ the Lord. These three themes, so clearly established early in Luke, later become the foundation of the apostolic preaching, particularly that of Paul. So to finish today, think about what we believe as Christians. The creator of all that was made, as we read in John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Not only entered into this fallen world as a human being, but lived the hard life that he did, only to wind up on a cross. If we really believe that, why should every aspect of our life be lived in submission to this amazing truth? What parts of your life reflect your belief in the story of Jesus, and what parts don't? Thursday, April 2. The Witness to the Saviour. Although writing primarily to the Gentiles, Luke was aware of the importance of the Jewish heritage through the Old Testament. He takes care to link the New Testament story with the Old and provides the scene of Mary and Joseph having the baby Jesus circumcised on the eighth day and taking him to the temple in Jerusalem all according to Jewish law, in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Question. Read Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through to 32. Note three points about the theology of salvation that Simeon brings to the fore. Salvation is through Jesus. Salvation is prepared by God. Salvation is for all peoples, to the Gentiles as well as to Israel. How do these truths tie in with the first angel's message of Revelation 14, verses 6 to 7? Let's read that one first. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Let's now read Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon's prophecy also predicted two significant features of Jesus' ministry. First, Christ is, as he says in verse 34, destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Yes, Christ has brought light and salvation to all, but not without cost to the recipient. With Christ there is no neutral ground. Accept him or reject him, and upon the appropriate response one's salvation depends. Christ demands exclusiveness. We abide in him or we do not. Those who abide in him will rise up and be part of his kingdom. Those who reject him or remain indifferent to him will fall to the ground and perish without hope. Faith in Christ is non-negotiable. Second, Simeon prophesies to Mary in verse 35, A sword will pierce through your own soul also. The reference, no doubt, is to the cross, which Mary will witness. Mary and all the generations that follow her ought to remember that without the cross there is no salvation. The cross is the hub around which the entire plan of salvation revolves. So to finish today, salvation is a gift in which we can do nothing to earn it. Yet it can still be very costly to those who claim it for themselves. What does following Christ cost you And why is that cost, whatever it may be, cheap enough? Friday, April 3 From the book The Ministry of Healing, pages 140 and 141, we read, Luke, the writer of the gospel that bears his name, was a medical missionary. In the scriptures he is called the Beloved Physician in Colossians 4.14. The Apostle Paul heard of his skill as a physician and sought him out as one to whom the Lord had entrusted a special work. He secured his cooperation, and for some time Luke accompanied him in his travels from place to place. After a time, Paul left Luke at Philippi in Macedonia. Here he continued to labour for several years, both as a physician and as a teacher of the gospel. In his work as a physician, he ministered to the sick and then prayed for the healing power of God to rest upon the afflicted ones. Thus the way was opened for the gospel message. Luke's success as a physician gained for him many opportunities for preaching Christ among the heathen. It is the divine plan that we shall work as the disciples worked. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. If Luke, in writing his gospel, took into account previously published materials, 
How are we to understand the inspiration of the Scriptures, where it tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that holy men of God were guided by the Holy Spirit? How does inspiration work? 2. The virgin birth is of God's making, marked by His mystery, majesty and mission. It is truly beyond human understanding too. But the question is, so what? How many secular things are beyond human understanding as well? If God does exist, and he has the power to create and sustain the universe, why should something like the virgin birth be beyond his power? Only those whose world view is limited to natural laws alone, at least the ones we can currently understand, could, a priori, dismiss the idea of a virgin birth. In contrast, those whose worldview incorporates the supernatural should have, a priori, no reason to reject it. After all, look at what the angel said to Mary after giving her the incredible news in Luke one thirty-seven: For with God nothing shall be impossible. And question three. An American TV interviewer is reported to have said that if he had an opportunity, the person he would most like to interview would be Jesus. And would you ask him just one question? Are you indeed born of a virgin? Why is that question and the answer to it so important? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled A Divine Encounter, and it's from Tang Yu from China. Taking her six year old son by the hand, Tang Yu didn't expect anything unusual to happen as she walked from her home to the nearby market. Little did she know that she was about to experience a divine encounter. Tang Yu believed in God, and on Sundays she met together with other Christian believers but at the moment her thoughts were centred on what she needed to get at the market. As she walked down the street, two kind-looking men approached her and stopped. "'You know,' said one, "'keeping Sunday is not from the Bible.' He held up a Bible and showed the astonished Tang Yu text regarding the seventh-day Sabbath. Encouraging her to see for herself, the other man told her, "'You can search the internet and see what day is really the Sabbath day.' Then the men concluded their brief presentation by telling Tang Yu, Jesus came to this world, and the Saturday church is really the church of God. Then, as quickly as they had come, the two men disappeared into the crowd. Astonished by this strange brief meeting, Tang Yu went home and began searching the internet for answers to the questions the strangers had raised. To her surprise she came across an amazing website in Chinese that had answers to her questions, including clear answers about the seventh day, Saturday, being God's true Sabbath. The website also offered easy-to-follow Bible studies. Learning that the website was from a Seventh-day Adventist ministry, she wondered if there might be an Adventist church nearby that she could visit. During another internet search, Tang Yu was happy to learn that there was an Adventist church in her city, and she decided to visit. Surely there must be something special about this church, she thought to herself. 
Finding her way to the church the following Sabbath, Tang Yu looked for the two men who had approached her on the street, but she didn't see them. In fact, she never saw them again. But she keeps returning to the Adventist church and believes that she has found her spiritual home. This church is teaching very closely to the Bible, says Tang Yu. It is very different from the Sunday church. I believe that what the Adventists are teaching is the truth and that Jesus is coming soon. Tang Yu continues to worship regularly with Seventh-day Adventists who meet together in an apartment within a city in central China. This quarter, a part of your 13th Sabbath offering is going to help provide more places of worship for believers in China. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>